Hello and welcome, this is GFN News on GFN.tv. I'm your host Joanna Yunak. In today's news. A ban on vaping devices in Mexico has been announced. We will hear reaction from Thomas O'Gorman and Roberto Sussman. In the United States, the FDA has ordered the vape company Juul to take its product off the market. And after the news, Brent Stafford of RecWatch interviews Buddy Costal, co-founder of the Global Forum on Nicotine. At the end of May, Mexico banned the sale of electronic cigarettes and other vaping devices. In the last episode, Will Godfrey shared his thoughts. Today, we are speaking to two experts from Mexico about the situation there. Thomas O'Gorman is a lawyer, ex-smoker and vapor since 2016, as well as co-founder of ProVapeo Mexico and a member of INCO's board. Hi Thomas, can you tell us why the government decided to ban the marketing and sale of vaping products? I, I, I don't know. Um, I guess it, the, the government is following the, the union's script, like if it was a movie. Uh, um, do you remember, if you remember, uh, the union issued some kind of, a, uh, positioning regarding safer alternatives in LMICs in 2020 called when bans are best, suggesting that all LMICs should ban these products and canceling therefore the, the right of, of people to access harm reduction products. <clears throat> Why do I say this? Because in February of 2020, the government, the, 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 our president issued a decree banning or prohibiting the, the import of, of vaping products. This decree has been <clears throat> uh, ratified in, in several decrees, uh, around three more decrees um, after the first one. And now it has been uh, introduced into the, the law that regulates the, the imports and export taxes. And now um, we find that on, on World No Tobacco Day, the president received some kind of award from WHO. And curiously, uh, he, he produces, he signs this decree, and, and now he has banned all forms of commercialization and transit of these products within the country, the whole country. Transit does not mean uh, being in possession of vaping products. We, we can use them and we can uh, have them in our, in our possession, but we cannot buy them. Why? Because there are no sellers. At least, at least that's what the, 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 the decree says. Uh, I think this reflects that this government has uh, in some way canceled any possibility to consider harm reduction as an option for smokers and for people who want, for the reason they may deem uh, appropriate, consume nicotine. Uh, it is a very authoritarian <coughs> measure, I think, especially if you consider that in, in October of, of last year, 19 October, the Supreme Court of Justice of Mexico ruled that the existing ban of commercialization in our law, because to, to be fair, uh, commercialization of vaping products has been, has been banned uh, in, in, in Mexico since at least 2000, 2010. Not because there is, it, it was a, an express, a, express prohibition. I mean, it was not uh, ad literum. Uh, 
it was because we, in our law, there, there was a provision very similar to the one in, in Western Australia. And um, the, the court ruled that the total prohibition of commercializing these products was unconstitutional. So it is amazing that, that considering that judicial precedent, the president uh, with this decree is doing exactly what the court said it was unconstitutional. He's, again, uh, by this decree, um, making this ban, right? What are your personal thoughts regarding the ban? I think it is, it is really sad. I was a, a, a two-pack-a-day smoker six years ago. And, and I, I quit, particularly in, a, in an accidental way, because I didn't want to quit smoking when I started vaping. Um, and, and because of that, that's what I started trying to do some kind of um, advocacy uh, for, for safer alternatives because I wanted the smokers to, to, to have the same opportunity I have. And, and well, this is becoming almost impossible. And uh, it is sad to see how our rights are being denied, are being uh, breached, are being canceled, because it is not only the right to health, it, and it is, it is the, the right to autonomy, to, to decide to, to consume nicotine in a, in, a, in a safer way, in a very, very safer, uh, with a very, very safer, a safer alternative, sorry. And um, it's sad to, to, to see these kind of autocratic decisions um, canceling almost all possibilities to, to, to make harm reduction thrive. And, and for smokers, they will continue smoking because they are not banning cigarettes. Um, so it is absurd, especially Mexico is, a, is an LMIC. And um, I think that harm reduction the, uh, and, and the access to safer alternatives would benefit the most uh, in, in LMICs, not only because most part of the smokers in the world are living in LMICs, but because smokers in these countries don't have, don't have access to, to other quitting methods, at, at least they are not uh, easily provide by countries, by governments, and uh, our healthcare systems, well, they are not very good, and 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 access to good health healthcare assistance is is not a reality. So, so it would be in the best interest of any government to to lower the diseases related to smoking, and and safer alternatives are the are one very good way to 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 be able to end with all these, these diseases, right? What will be the consequences of this change? The consequences, well, the government has been uh, writing, ma making some uh, uh, sizing markets and closing stores and in, in the last few days. What will happen? Stores will go into the dark. They, I guess they will still working, we will have a thriving black market with all, all the bad consequences that, that arise from these kind of markets, problems with quality and safety of the products, uh, maybe even uh, uh, things related to crime. Uh, Mexico has a very, very serious problem regarding uh, drugs and drugs cartels. And I, I, I maybe, maybe I'm being uh, exaggerated, I hope, 
I hope not, but I fear that all these uh, gangs and all these crime organizations will see in vaping a new way of earning money because there is a market for these products in Mexico. I mean, my, my best guess is that at least we have 1.5 million adults using these products, maybe two. Um, uh, so, so the black market will thrive with all the bad consequences. It will be far more difficult for users to, to access alternatives. And on the other hand, the, we might be subjects for some kind of a stigma, right? Uh, of using a, a, a product uh, that the government is saying it's very dangerous, like, or more dangerous actually like tobacco because two, two weeks before the two weeks before the the decree, the the government launched an an a sanit what was the name some kind of maximum sanitary alert, warning the population that the use of these products was terrible and and, and it was a, a health a health problem. If they don't do that with other products like alcohol and tobacco, the effect is that I guess people will think that vaping is far more dangerous than smoking, right? And and the problem with that decree is that it's absolutely anachronic because it is mostly based on on a, on the valid considerations and and the using of acid uh, vitamin E as an ingredient of vaping products, um, without distinguishing. Uh, uh, liquids with THC, THC which, which were the, the, the products that were adulterated in the States in 2019 and in 2022, the government of Mexico is using that problem that happened in the past almost three years ago as a way to, to inform people about the risk of the products and, and without differentiating uh, THC vaping, if, if it can be called like that. And, and real vaping or conventional vaping, which is vaping as a, as a as an alternative to tobacco. Thank you, Thomas. Let's see what Roberto Sussman thinks about this ban. Roberto is the founder and director of ProVapel Mexico, an association representing Mexican consumers of non-compostable nicotine products and is a member of INCO. He's also actively advocating for an appropriate regulation of tobacco harm reduction products in Mexico. Uh, it is a very, very counterproductive measure. Uh, it's, a, it's a very authoritarian um, decree and very authoritarian policy. It was not consulted with anybody. It's, uh, it's really the, uh, the, it was imposed in a vertical way and it is completely dismissive on the, um, the consequences, because uh, it, is, it is a measure that uh, will criminalize more, it will, it will criminalize even more uh, one and a half million users, people who use the devices, either uh, smokers who want to quit smoking or want to migrate to a lesser harm, a product, that delivers lesser harm, or people who just try it, you know, it's a product, so there's going to be people who try it. Now, there, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and also, it deprives 
15 million smokers who still are still smoking with the option, a legal option, uh, together with information about these devices. Because once you ban it, then the only information is information given by the health ministry, which is based on lies. I, I, I'm, I'm not uh, mincing words, it's lies. For our health minister, the de facto health minister, the Avali crisis never ended. So or, uh, he warns uh, that uh, the, the devices are lethal and his argument is based on the Avali crisis. In fact, he, in, he mentioned specifically that the devices contain acetate of vitamin E, which was the cause of the Evali crisis. But he doesn't mention that that crisis came because of a black market and he's opening the door to the black market. And it is very worrying because there are already signals that criminal elements are entering to supply this market because we have seen lately a flood, really, really, really a flood they are everywhere of very cheap disposables made in China. And uh, they are very low quality. And um, this is a very, very extended uh, distribution network. They're everywhere. They, they are being sold by street vendors. They are in commercial plazas. They are in corners, in street markets. And the, the vendors, the informal, the traditional vendors, acting in an informal market, they are not criminals, they are small merchants, small small uh, vendors, and they don't have the resources to put up such a large, uh, such a large distribution. So who is doing that? We don't know, but it is, it is a sign that criminal, the organized crime, in possible association or tolerance by the government is doing this. So we do have what the Americans call the alliance between the Baptist and the bootlegger, right? So it's very disturbing. Let's turn now to the United States where the big news has been the FDA's June 23rd denial of Jules marketing applications under the PMTA process. Hi, Will, can you tell us more? The decision has shocked most people I know in the THR community, Joanna. As we've previously discussed, the FDA has already rejected large numbers of applications from smaller companies to be authorized as appropriate for the protection of public health under the PMTA process. But a handful of vape products made by large companies with the resources to include reams of scientific information in their applications have been authorized. Many believe that Juul would join them. And Juul, of course, is quite simply the biggest name in US vaping. After coming on the market in 2015, it was embroiled in controversy for ads deemed to appeal to youth, inspiring sensationalized media coverage of a supposed youth vaping epidemic. Youth vaping has more recently declined, and most youth who do vape prefer other products. And Juul, which I should disclose has contributed grants to my own organization, has in recent years demonstrated excessive caution, preemptively pulling its flavors from the market in 2019, for example, before the law required it. 
the company no longer has the market dominance it once did, but has remained a huge player in providing harm reduction options. As Clive Bates put it, it was the most successful anti-smoking product ever seen, and the FDA's decision is to try to kill it. Why do you think this happened and what happens next? Well, the FDA claimed that Juul's applications lacked sufficient evidence regarding the toxicological profile of the products, which seems questionable when any such deficiencies could have been addressed earlier in the process. Many observers view it rather as political punishment for Juul's perceived past sins. Juul, for its part, has said that it respectfully disagrees with the decision and will seek a stay in the courts. A major legal case seems inevitable, some smaller companies have had success with lawsuits against the FDA and Juul should certainly have the resources to fight such a case. But as things stand, millions of people face losing their preferred alternative to cigarettes in a disaster for public health. Thank you, Will. And now we go over to Brent Stafford and his guest Paddy Costar, co-founder of the Global Forum on Nicotine. In today's interview, Paddy shares his views about the future of tobacco harm reduction, which was the subject of the ninth Global Forum on Nicotine this year in June in Warsaw. Over to you, Brent. Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. We're here in Warsaw, Poland for the Global Forum on Nicotine, GFN 22, and I'm sitting here with Paddy Kostel, the conference director. Indeed. Now, You've obviously been a part of this since day one. Why nicotine? Why, why is there this the ninth year of a conference that's all about nicotine? I think that everybody involved in the early days and everybody's still involved from, the, um, from our team, most came from a drugs background, working with drug users, working with people who problem drinkers, whatever people who don't fit within the, the norms of society. And I think one of the things that people fail to recognise is that we, we expend an awful lot of effort, time and effort, in mitigating the harms caused by different drugs. But the one elephant in the room that people were not addressing was smoking. And there were far more of the people that we worked with who were going to die from a smoking-related disease than we're ever gonna die from overdose or any other drug-related disease. And to actually try and assist people through difficulties and, it, and, and not attempt to deal with one of the most dangerous, the dangerous behaviors that they would exhibit, just seemed to me and others to be a bit nonsensical. We started to talk a little bit about, about harm reduction with alcohol. For example, how do you make drinking spaces safer? People being trained as to when they should serve people drinks or when they shouldn't serve people drinks. People being trained to know the signs when there's a problem. The playbook was well established in terms of tobacco harm reduction for drugs. And largely that came about as a result of the response to the AIDS pandemic, where you know there were measures that were taken that which would be wholly unacceptable 20, 30 years ago, which was giving people clean needles, giving people substitute prescribing, that various other things. But tobacco had never, re never really been tackled. And then you know, 15 years ago, the emergence of these new cigar-like products and people 
taking nicotine in a cleaner and safer way. And in parallel to that, and in tandem with it, you had a growing body of evidence and research that was emerging saying, these could be effective ways of helping people quit. And the language that we were using then was the language of tobacco control, which was quitting, stopping smoking, all of, all of the kind of negative reinforcement. And then what we started to do was change that slightly, change the lexicon slightly, and we started talking about switching. Now, there is a, some people might say that's semantics, but it's not, because stopping is you, are, you set yourself a date and you're going to quit doing something completely. But people say, I enjoy smoking. Most people who say that say it because they enjoy nicotine. I don't necessarily think they enjoy the feeling of smoking. So some people say, well, I don't want to stop using nicotine, but I don't want to smoke. So tobacco harm reduction is a strategy which basically enables people to have a way out but to continue to enjoy what they've enjoyed for years. As we've gone along, the other thing that's become a bone of contention has been regulation. And regulation has been used as a blunt instrument by tobacco control and by WHO and others to stop people doing things. It's kind of, if we tax it, or if we make it impossible to use, or we make it illegal to use in a particular place, that will stop people doing it. Well, I'm sorry, you know, news, um, news for you here, and uh, this is not gonna work. In the 10 years, almost 10 years, yeah. since you started this, did you think that the state of the acceptance of nicotine and delivery devices like e-cigarettes, and then there's snus, and you know, Zin products and so forth, could you have imagined that things would be this dire? Myself and my colleagues, particularly Jerry, Jerry Stimson, whose history in the field of drug use, etc., the drug and um, HIV, eminent international researcher and a public health scientist. Naively, we thought that people would embrace this and welcome it with open arms. Oh my God, this is something that we can really get into. And we've been, Gradually, as over the years, we've been ostracised. He has particularly, um, and the one, pe the one group of people that is absent from the conference and who need to be in the room to have the discussion properly are the are the scientists, the public health scientists, and the reason for that is that they are, in mo in many cases, fearful of being seen to be too cosy and too close to people who were considered to be an extension, a shill of the tobacco industry. I find that quite offensive, to be honest. What we have always said is that the Global Forum is the, pl the only place where science and policy can meet, and we don't exclude anybody. We do not practice any kind of um, prohibition on people coming. Now, there's certainly been a growing movement. It's not receding, it's growing, and that's a kind of an academic apartheid, if it you is. can put it. It is, yeah. I mean, we have sessions in this conference where people are going to tell their stories about how they have been progressively marginalised by their colleagues. <clears throat> people who are eminent and well-regarded, international researchers, in a very, very new and exciting field, 
but they've gone off message and they've started to say, hey, there's something in this. We've got to talk to these guys. And I think that that's a sad, sad situation. I don't know how we can resolve that, but all I can say to anybody in tobacco research, tobacco control, is the door's open. No one's going to stop you walking through it. Nobody's going to be nasty to you. What we want to do is have the discussion, talk. Let's, let's explore where the differences lie and let's explore where the similarities lie. Because as, as somebody pointed out to me a long time ago, tobacco harm reduction is part of tobacco control. Because you, you have to use, again, all the tools at your disposal. Nobody disputes that tobacco, burning tobacco, smoking, is a very, very deadly habit. It's a, dead, it's a deadly behaviour and nobody disputes that it would be a great idea if we could end that. But we can't end that by just getting rid of tobacco. It's there. Many, many economies in the world depend on tobacco. There's a lot more, it's a lot more complex argument than a simple, you know, if, if tobacco companies were serious about changing to new products, they'd stop selling cigarettes tomorrow. I don't think you could do that. And in many places um, in the West, uh, to put a point on it, there's often messaging that comes out that actually says that, you know, say vaping is as dangerous as smoking. Certainly the public believes that, and that's a, a huge change in just the last five years. That, that's coming from public health. Yeah. It's a lie. It's, a, it's as simple as that. It's wrong, manifestly wrong. And what we've, what we've actually moved away from is scientific analysis and we've moved into ideology and sloganizing. And it suits a large section of the media because the media likes simple messages and it likes to be able to portray things simply. You do not get the kind of editorial content in mainstream media that you used to get. You don't get both sides of the argument being put you get much more of a sort of visceral or emotional response. People who use nicotine may be dependent, but they're not going to go out burgling people's houses to get their nicotine. They're not, you know, it's not crack cocaine. It's kind of, it needs to be viewed as something that, in the same way some people are dependent on caffeine. You know, oh, I can't start the day without my first cup of coffee. That's exactly the same thing. But none of those people would actually call themselves addicts. None of those people would want to be described as an addict. Because an addict is a certain construct. It's a shabby, disheveled person sitting in the gutter, either drinking from a bottle or injecting themselves with, with other substances. And I think that's another thing. It's because it's, it's one of the things that's used by the ants when they, when they attack. They say, oh, nicotine, people get addicted. Well, they don't. People, as I say, can become dependent. I think dependency is a very much more benign concept than addiction. I've been worked in the field of drug, drug use and drug abuse and alcohol and various other things. I can honestly say that I've never, I've never been able to see any of those characteristics in people who either smoke or vape or use snuffs or use patches, gums, whatever it is they do. So. You use the term ants. What exactly is that? People who are anti-tobacco harm reduction. They're people who increasingly, as the science mounts up, 
on our side of the argument that tobacco harm reduction is, is has efficacy and it's actually something that benefits a lot of people and keeps people alive. They get increasingly desperate and they are launching attacks on people for all sorts of reasons. And I mean, to use the football analogy, they're playing the man, not the bull. You know, they've given up on trying to attack the science and dis discredit the science because the science is coming out strongly saying that nicotine is manifestly less harmful than, um, than smoking, that using vaping products or using heat not burn products. I mean, everybody now is familiar, I think, with the cliff of risk that you have tobacco products. You have something that you set fire to, and then you have things in descending order, but rather than descending in a gentle curve, they descend like that, and then they, de then they, they um, decrease more rapidly, as, uh, or less rapidly, as you look along the spectrum of what people use. Mm -hmm. So I think that we need we need to have an honest debate and, a honest, and an honest discussion, and that's what this event is about. I mean, there's the other myth that, you know, people are getting hooked on vaping and then switching to cigarettes. Marginal, minor, no, no real evidence of it at all. Personal view, I'm not a scientist, but kids experiment. And some kids will stay using these things. And most kids will say, what's next? What's my, ne what's my, ne what's my next experimentation? And even if, even if young people, dare I say it, and I know it's heresy to some people to say it, but dare, dare I say that if, if they continue to vape, it really isn't that big a problem. Parents should be much more concerned about other things that are much more dangerous, like smoking. And I'm not saying that we should encourage people to vape or to use other forms of nicotine, but I think we should accept it as a reality and not get too emotive and too p panicked by the whole thing. And certainly, I mean, there's the, what is it, the common liability theory, which says that some of these kids who may have tried an e-cigarette first, who may have then got on to smoke, would have more likely have been trying smoking anyhow. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and disturbing thing she was saying is that um, her child, goes to school and teachers in the school are telling them, giving the public health message about the dangers of vaping, you know, it's how really, really bad and how dangerous it is. And she said it was, she was quite proud of her son because he stood up and said, that's wrong. Mm. And, you know, my mum is a vapor and she works as a researcher and, and, and the teacher had no answer. And it was just sort of sit down and be quiet. But they are being, I don't envy teachers' position because they're being given the task of molding people's beliefs and one thing and another. And that is the kind of messaging that's coming out. And this is coming from groups of parents and others who have been co-opted into this whole kind of nicotine is evil and it's a big plot by the tobacco industry to get all our kids hooked. It's not. It always seems to be about control. And when it comes to the kids, it seems to me that maybe uh, nicotine has gotten in their way 
of a grand plan to re-engineer kids to be, you know, better people. I personally, I mean, I don't have children, but my view is that parents need the best information possible for them to make decisions about what they do with their child. Because their responsibility is to ensure that our child is safe, well, and able to function in society and can grow. And I think that if people have an aversion to people vaping, smoking, or whatever, they're quite within their rights to hold those views and to do whatever they see as fit. But they should be doing that from a position of knowledge, not prejudice. And what we've got now is we've got, an, we've got a campaign that is relentless in trying to frighten people into the belief that they need to be very wary of something which the evidence doesn't suggest merits that. And I think that that's a very, very dangerous trend. To, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. As I say, all we want to have is a sensible, open and honest conversation and, you know, no hidden agendas. But we can't have that because they won't sit in a room with us. The motto for this year is tobacco harm reduction, here for good. Yeah. What does that mean to you? It means two things. It's here because it's good and it's not going away anytime soon. So interpret in whichever way you wish. But what we're doing, I think, is we're putting a marker down and saying we're moving into the next stage of the game now. We're, we proved, I mean, you know all of the sub, you know all of the strap lines from the various conferences that we've had. And we've moved in the direction of we're building the, we're building the evidence, we're building the case for tobacco harm reduction. And now what we're saying is we're not going away. You know, we're not going to say, well, that's the job done, let's move on and start looking at something else, because we're not. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build alliances and, and, and uh, establish working relationships with people in fields where the vast majority of the clientele are smokers. And the obvious ones being drug use, alcohol use, mental health issues, where, you know, you, the, the stats don't lie and you know 80 90 percent of the people are smokers and how can we work together to help them to determine a strategy that's gonna that's gonna change that let me ask you this patty we've been covering on reg watch over the last well i'd really say the last year but it's been very noticeable in, uh in 2022 that there really is an uptick on the amount of research that's been coming out that has been positive towards vaping, evidence-based, there's a real movement that seems to be happening within tobacco control research uh, on those that are, or, or that are doing it. Am I seeing something there that's not there? No, I think, I, I mean, it was one of the things, one of the highlights that in our first Global State Report, Global State of Tobacco Harm Reduction Report, when Harry Shapiro was researching for that, one of the things he looked at was like in, I think it was 2005, there was something like 17 or 18 publications that he could find that were directly related to kind of nicotine and tobacco harm reduction. And by the time the first report was issued, which was 2018, there was something over seven and a half thousand papers had been produced. So it's an area of growth. And it's an, a massive area of growth. The problem is, of course, that research is commissioned by people with an agenda, I would say, and that's unfortunate. 
because it's kind of um, well, how how much will it cost you to find this for me? I need to I need this outcome. How much is it? You know what what research you need to do to find that rather than what do you think will happen if we do this? And that's what we want. We want open-minded researchers who will employ their talents and their skills to actually not support one side or the other of the argument. And that's what's necessary. In the US, come July 15th, uh, the, you know, the new regulations on synthetic nicotine hit. Pretty much every product that's on the market, except for a couple of these products that have received FDA approval, but pretty much the entire business goes into gray market, black market. Um, what's going to happen to the millions of people who use the products? You know, I think there will be a slide back into people start smoking again because availability and accessibility are two of the big, the key issues. Um, I think the regulators sh regularly shoot themselves in the foot because regulation should be about safety and basically making sure people aren't getting ripped off. It should not be about, let's put the price up, let's make them inaccessible. Because what you create there is you create the black market. I think it's a shocking situation and a lot of people will suffer. But the other thing I know from knowing lots of consumers from all around the world, and here today, there's 60 or 70 from probably 30 or 40 countries. They're resilient. They will find a way. Because what they've found is they've found a life affirming and life-changing product that helps them get through the day and doesn't harm them. So they're not going to give it up. Thank you, Brent. That's all for today. Thanks for watching and see you next time for more tobacco harm reduction updates and brands for coming interviews with more Global Forum on Nicotine panelists. Thank you and goodbye.